All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another roundup of Bell Curve. You got Michaels 1 and 2, Vance and Yano. All the fellows are back. Welcome guys. back. The boys are back. back. You guys just want to launch right into GBTC. This was a big week, big legal uh, victory week for crypto overall, continuing a trend, I think, that was set by the XRP decision. And we actually had two big wins this week. One was GBTC and the other was Uniswap, which flew a little bit more under the radar, but I think was almost equally as important. So maybe just to kick things off with the GBTC decision. So the high level is the U.S. Court of Appeals struck down the SEC's denial of a Bitcoin spot ETF. So what this doesn't mean is that we're in immediately getting a GBTC Bitcoin ETF, and that conversion is definitely going to be successful. But what it does mean is that the SEC now has to go back and review Grayscale's proposal again with the court's ruling in mind. And what was specific about what was uh, what makes this a win, I think, for crypto is that the SEC was or the court rather was incredibly specific about the rationale for why the SEC had to go back and review uh, the SEC's decision. And, you know, from my understanding, not a legal expert here, but they really boxed them in. And in particular, what they focused on was the link in between the spot and the futures uh, markets. So that close link, they pointed out. In kind of plain English, something that I think many people had been thinking about all along, which is how does it make any sense in the world to have a futures ETF approved, but not a spot ETF? There's a great line somewhere in here, which is that uh, the futures are derivative of the spot market after all. So it feels very unlikely at this point that the SEC is going to appeal. Uh, I guess that would go to the Supreme Court, but that seems unlikely. There are still avenues open for the SEC to deny a spot ETF, but what, what do you guys make of all this? Spot Bitcoin ETF is coming at some point. Just depends yeah. when. They they just uh, this is breaking news that will be old by the time this is listened to. But they just delayed on Wisdom Tree and Galaxy. So like they're not just coming out and approving these. And mm-hmm. I think the the timelines that like James Seifert and Eric Balchunas from Bloomberg say are Jan 1, 2024. So it's going to be a minute, um, but it's positive, and it was 3-0, and it was, a, I think it was a Trump judge, an Obama judge, and a, and a Biden judge, and he lost 0-3. And what's interesting, kind of outside of that, is just, if you look at the recent descents into SEC settlements, especially the NFT one that was, I think, this week, you have, uh, there's five commissioners on the SEC, Um you have two of them. It used to only just be Hester Pierce kind of issuing a letter of dissent against the the different kind of judgments that the SEC is putting on these these people that they're going after. And so it's it's like the courts. It's also like the commission. And you only need three out of five for something to kind of or for something to get approved by the SEC. So you already have two. And I think this case is just kind of like another. It may be the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of okay. Now you probably have three SEC commissioners that are saying this just isn't reasonable anymore, which it isn't. And you saw that in the court opinion. Yeah. Only thing I'd add, um, James Seifert and uh, Eric um, B. Yeah, Bachrinus from Bloomberg, uh, they up their odds, I believe, to 75% chance that a spot Bitcoin ETF gets approved in 2023 and a 95% chance that it gets approved in 2024. So I think, you know, it, it's really financial gravity at this point as to like what direction we're going. What does that do actually to, you know, Bitcoin markets? Um, it's probably, you know, positive uh, to say the least in terms of, you know, where capital will ultimately be flowing. I did see some interesting takes, um, you know, what what the courts hammered on was the difference and, you know, the, the manufactured difference between um, uh, spot and futures. And uh, really what this ruling says, as we've been talking about, is you have to go back and tell us another reason or you have to go back and give us a different reason as to why you're denying the spot uh, Bitcoin ETFs. 
The other way that James Seifert was talking about it is um, he said, well, you know, they could also just go back and rescind the, the Bitcoin futures ETF uh, uh, approval. Um, so I, like, once again, this is not done. I don't think that's going to happen, frankly. Um, but there is still a lot of stuff that's going to have to go through for us to be able to get to that spot Bitcoin ETF. The other thing, which I think is, is also, you know, starting to pile up is what's going to happen with Ethereum. And I think mm -hmm. a week ago or maybe 10 days ago, there was, a, there was a Bloomberg article that talked about, um, the, the fact that the SEC is apparently open to approving a ETH futures ETF, which, um, I, mm -hmm. I think would be, you know, massively bullish for a number of reasons. Number one, obviously. Uh, you know, the capital formation that happens when you have an ETF like that, no matter whether or not it's futures or spot. But what it also implies is that it would be the first time that you have the blessing of the SEC around Ethereum, um, because it would effectively mean that it's not a security. Um, so I think that if that goes through and that would happen sometime in mid-October, um, that is also one of the most bullish things for the entire industry. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Permissionless. This is the biggest and best conference in all of DeFi. It's the one that we do with Bankless, who's a great partner for us. Last year, we had almost 7,000 people there in West Palm Beach. We are moving this year to Austin, Texas from September 11th through the 13th. And if you are a listener of Bell Curve, any of these last five seasons, this conference is basically custom made for you. We're going to be talking about liquid staking, the theme of this season. We've got a bunch of great panels on MEV. If you listen to the app chain thesis, we've got a bunch of Cosmos folks out there in full force. We're talking about the converging architecture of Solana, the roll-up space in ETH and Cosmos. So I would love to see all of you there. And to reward you for being such great listeners to Bell Curve, you get a special 30% off code. It's Bell Curve 30. That'll get you 30% off tickets. Click the link in the show notes and then head over to the permissionless site and make sure that you get your ticket today. Again, that is Bell Curve 30. Click the link in the show notes. So the three pass forward right now is... So we don't have a Bitcoin ETF right now. The three pass forward are one, it kind of depends on how hard Gary Gensler wants to fight, right? So one is he want he really wants to fight. He wants to go to the mat and they, so they have 45 days to figure out whether or not they want to appeal or not. That, that's one option. Second option is they don't appeal this, but they come at them from a different angle. They can't use the argument of, hey, this is not a market of sufficient size to prevent manipulation, but there's a different reason we want to say no. Or the third is that they... um that they were in the futures. It does feel like the um, the difference between now, so the first Bitcoin ETF got introduced, what, 10 years ago with the Winklevoss twins? It feels like the difference- no, between, not, not, not that long, but I think it was seven uh, years, March 2020, 27 what? or 17. So, you, you sure? All right, whatever. Uh, however long it was ago, like several years ago, um, the biggest difference is that BlackRock's now in the game, I think. And now there's like, there is a, uh, there is a real wall, uh, there's like a real player from Wall Street, I think, who's not Wisdom Tree and something like that. Like there's, I think the uh, the appetite is there, but also the political influence is there now. So I don't, I don't see them rescinding the, the this futures ETP. I don't know what you guys think of that about that. But. No, that that's more of like a uh, straw man example of like yeah. that is possible, but it's it's like you know zero percent chance effectively that that's going to happen. Um, yeah, I mean, I, the other part on that second point uh, about going back and, and kind of figuring out uh, a different angle to come at it, um, you know, the SEC has also been really, uh, really difficult when it comes to custodians. And they have this yeah. new uh, custodian rule uh, that they're working through the system for registered investment advisors. So it is possible that, you know, that could be the new angle of attack. Um and that, if they were to come at it from a different angle, I think that would be the most likely one. Hmm. I, I think there's, I mean, one of the other differences though, Jason, even in between 2017 or whenever the Winkle buy for supply for that Bitcoin ETF is the market is definitely much larger right now. And there's a lot of the original argument that the SEC focused on and why I think there was a futures ETF allowed before a spot is market surveillance. And it's much easier for them to conduct their definition of market surveillance if there's a futures that's trading on the CME as opposed to Bitcoin that trades on all these different offshores uh, exchanges. And that part, part, partially some of those challenges have been solved because there are better surveillance technologies now. And you do have uh, this sort of U.S. infrastructure in the form of what Coinbase has built out since 2017, right? So you have this kind of NASDAQ Coinbase partnership. Um, which allows that to be possible. The other thing is the political will thing I wouldn't underestimate as well either. And 
I think one of the, we can get into the Uniswap ruling as well, but it does feel like there's a, a tide that's turned. J Jim Chanos talks about this as well within the context of fraud. And I think the analogy applies here, which is when everything is ripping up, there's zero demand out there to get to the bottom of frauds, right? Because everyone's making money and it's like, don't fuck up the money. But as soon as everything turns around, everyone wants to know why. So the demand for people to get to the bottom of fraud and bad activities is just much higher. And it feels like a couple of months ago, the demand for people to find accountability for why they were losing money was at its highest. And we've moved past that point. So I think that was the point of the SEC's highest demand political will. And that's moving back in the opposite direction now. And there was actually a uh, an article from the Wall Street Journal. There were a couple articles that came out this week, but this one comes from the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, which is significant in my opinion. The title of this article is The SEC Strikes Out Again on Crypto with Grayscale. And there are some choice, you know, there's some choice language here from this is coming directly again from the from the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal. It's a it's a big deal, I think. And it, and it just feels it feels like the uh, it feels like the tide is turning to me. So a little anticlimactic conclusion there. But I think in the quarter of public opinion, the SEC is finally looking to start like it's losing. And a lot of the rationale that they used to target crypto crypto firms wasn't actually as solid as they originally thought. I think what we're going to hear next, uh, not necessarily next, but what I think we're going to start to hear at some point soon here is uh, effectively mission accomplished. And the SEC is going to say, we did it. We regulated it. It's now safe. We're fine with it. BlackRock is leading the charge. They're not going to let Grayscale get converted before BlackRock gets approved. But we've got you know traditional guys, Wall Street involved. And I, I think they're going to memory hole the losses and basically turn it around and turn it into a positive. Mr. Gensler is holding Bitcoin spot ETPs hostage in his crypto market power grab. Until crypto exchanges register with the SEC, he won't authorize spot Bitcoin ETFs. Arbitrary regulation and regulatory overreaches are recurring themes of the Gensler SEC and Biden administration. Is he trying to match Lena Khan's losing record at the Federal hmm. Trade Commission? So hell of a quote. That is, <clears throat> it's a hell of a quote. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can kind of see this with Lena Khan too. And this probably doesn't mean much to people who watch this podcast, but she's been, you know, very aggressive and losing. And now she's been more favorable, waving things through, waving thing, waving like kind of big, you know, competitive acquisitions through. Um, I think at a certain point, you just need to stop losing. You know, stop, you know, what do you do when you find yourself in a hole? Just stop digging. Uh, and then just kind of like try to like crawl your way out and maintain dignity. But I think the dates to look out for are September 12th is when Gary Gensler testifies before the Senate Banking and House Financial Services Committees. Um, then you have October 10th, which I don't know why is the day that people have put out there for ETH futures. There's some, there, I think that's like the next approval potential date. Maybe that gets delayed too. And then Jan 1. So it's all happening in Q4 for the most part, which is exciting. Yeah, and then the end of the 240 days, the other big one is... Uh... It's Q1, right? So Mar I think it's March, mid-March, basically, all of the final. So you have 240 days to review the um, an ETF if you're the SEC. And a lot of the, the end of the 240 days comes due in March for, I think, seven out of the eight open uh, open Bitcoin ETFs. BlackRock, Fidelity, uh, Wisdom Tree, Valkyrie, whole, Bitwise, a whole bunch of those are in, are in March. What if, what if we get the spot Bitcoin ETF approval on the same day of the happening, right, right into the happening, right into, oh God. right into presidential year, right into the fed, turning the interest rates around. Oh, <laughs> so the, the other angle, which I think is interesting just because we were talking about it <clears throat> is, you know, they touched on the sort of the administrative state uh, perspective that this has been pervasive across the Biden administration. You, you also had one of the leading candidates for the Republican nomination, quote tweet uh, Katie Hahn about the SEC losing 3-0. I, I think you're going to start to see the candidacy, uh, all, all the candidates start to build a perspective. You've got RFK announcing his presidency at Bitcoin Miami. You've got Vivek uh, Ramaswamy talking about and quote tweeting Katie Hahn. Like, I, I think this is going to become a, a new, you know, 
rallying cry, um, especially, you know, if you want to reach the younger demographics, this is going to be a good way to do that. Vivek. (laughs) (laughs) What a guy. (laughs) He's got some pretty out there ideas. I don't know if we have enough time to get into all of them, but uh, some of them are pretty wild. We're doing a political app one of these days. We'll wait till 24 to do that. Yeah. Yeah. People are, people are going to be, yeah, fired up, but it's good to see getting the press and it's good to see Bitcoin standing for kind of like the, it's gone through a lot of narratives, but now I think Bitcoin and crypto are kind of like pushed back against the regulatory apparatus nanny state. And I don't think there's many other assets that fulfill that role. Like you could say oil is that in some ways. But like I, I like I personally don't like oil. Like I, I I hope we can save the planet at some point. I think most people agree with us on that. Like Bitcoin is kind of more neutral in many senses, and it's gotten sort of beat up the past couple of years. But it's a good narrative backdrop to have for it. I agree with that. I think Bitcoin becomes. I think it's part of an overall backlash to, um, yeah, the political movements of the last couple of years, and it's become sort of beacon. It's not a. It's not an accident that across both sides of the aisle, the fringe candidate, the they all support Bitcoin, and I think it does. Uh, you know, and I talked about this example a little while ago. Remember when Spotify was. Uh, faced with deplatforming Rogan or facing all that backlash for having Joe Rogan on the platform. So all this eventually boils down to a business decision for a company like Spotify. So imagine if they make the decision, which they did, to side with Joe Rogan. Maybe they lose a little bit of business. So now that you have that audience of Rogan, like what impact, if any, do you think supporting Bitcoin would have on Spotify as a business? Probably pro, right? Like that probably moves into the, yeah, this is probably a plus EV thing for me to do. And, you know, I don't think that's the the core driving force for crypto or Bitcoin, but marginally, I think it actually ends up mattering. It becomes a part of these political movements and things like that going into the future, if I had to guess. So I like I don't know. I, I, and it's not just domestic, it's international. It's the guy from Argentina. It's like it's kind of it's the narrative is starting to form and it's starting to form right before the happening right before interest rate cuts and an etf baby <laughs> and the etf like if you in january of this year if you could if you could draw out like a plausible you know how do we recover the industry from a macro perspective it would be like somehow some banks blow up you know there's an etf that somehow gets approved and like we get back in the narrative from a political standpoint those those would be like the narrative things that i would care about other than use cases and things endogenous to the industry it's happening. What do you make, if anything, of the price action post post uh, this new the GBTC news? So originally, there's a big move up, right, from I don't know, like 25 to 28 or something like that. Looking today, it's basically given everything back. Also, the the uh, discount on GBTC got it jumped like 12 percent in one day, something like that. But it's basically given up most of its gains. Do you think there's anything? Is it just a little bit of a knee jerk reaction, or what, what do you think about the price action? Broadly speaking, it's just so slow right now. Uh, yeah. You know, it's the Thursday before Labor Day. Um, nobody wants to be buying or selling right now. Like, there's basically zero liquidity. Um, I think people are just licking their wounds, waiting for some of these things to to happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, this fall will be, I think, a lot of positive, uh, you know, new new catalysts. But people are like waiting for that right now. Is my opinion. It's also, the, it's also the slowest day or the slowest week of the year, two weeks for TradFi. Like there's no liquidity in TradFi. Everyone's out. Some you know, it's like the skeleton crews are manning the desks. Like I wouldn't look too much into it. I think people are preparing to come back from vacation and settle into whatever narrative they're kind of force fed when they sit down at their Bloomberg <laughs> terminal. Let's beat it. <laughs> yeah, I think the first two weeks of September will dictate what the market, like the macro market trajectory is for the rest of the year. Hmm. Yeah. Do you guys think Bitcoin ends over or under 40? 40? Is that financial advice? Yeah, it sounds like, advice. sounds like this might become a financial <laughs> advice podcast of which we can't participate. <laughs> but it's an interesting philosophical question. Um that we can't answer, but <laughs> I, I think, I think like what, the price action on one hand, like people were trying to price it in. And on the other hand, it's like not possible to price it in because yeah. it's like, 
the variables are accessibility, interest, macro, but also I think I heard on an Eric Balchunas podcast that registered financial advisors control somewhere between 10 and 10 and 15 trillion of wealth. Yeah, dude, a lot. Yeah, and, most, yeah a lot. And his, most his, that's his, boomers too. Yeah, most that's boomers too. And like, he was basically saying like, if they, if they even get like a percent or like a tenth of a percent, you know, that's 10 to 25 billion of, of flows. And if you get those amount of flows, it's probably good for, you know, the best uh, opening year other than like QQQ. But it'll be a substantial part of the market cap of, of Bitcoin and Ethereum and everything else. So like, I don't think it's really possible to price it in. Um, but if there's any even a sliver of truth to that data, I don't know. This this could be far larger than people anticipate. Tom, Tom Lee from Fundstrat says that <laughs> if a spot Bitcoin ETF gets approved, Bitcoin is going to, uh, based on the data and analysis that they've performed, 180,000. <laughs> Let's go. We love Tom Lee. I love, love Tom, Tom Lee, man. I love his yeah. predictions. He never I, folded. He stayed bullish. He's based on his predictions and his rigorous analysis. Yeah. He didn't fold. No. Their fun stats legit. I mean, they do actually right. have rigorous analysis. The Yano knows I've been banging the drum of RIAs for like five years in Blockworks because these guys control an enormous amount of, of money. In the US, I think it, I think that's a global stat, 15 trillion. I think in the US it's like three or something like that, but trillion with a T. And from my understanding, there's a there's a basic incentive problem with RAs that you guys you guys probably know, which is that RAs get comped on the amount of assets that they're managing on your behalf, and the way that they track those assets is partnerships with brokerage, right? So it's all hooked up. The back end infrastructure is like, hey, um, you have your assets on TD Ameritrade or Fidelity or whatever, and I can track the amount that I have control over, and that's the fee that I clip. If an RAA today would recommend you put some of your assets in Bitcoin, it would take them off of the brokerage, move them onto something like Coinbase, and then they're not getting paid on that. It's like the silliest <laughs> incentive misalignment, but it's so real. Not only that, so there's there's a disincentive issue or an incentive issue. Uh, it's also, I don't know if anybody has tried to do this, but has anyone tried to actually put like Bitcoin into an IRA? It is so hard to do. It is like there are now a couple of products, but you have to seek them out. You have to sign up. You have to get a self-directed IRA. You have to fund it by transferring money in from your existing IRA. And then you have to start uh, effectively a prime account with like a Coinbase or any of these other platforms that, you know, like it is so hard to do. I haven't even done it. And, you know, I, I we should be the poster child children for, you know, being able to do this. But yeah, my I was talking to my uncle uh, recently and, um, you know, a number of funny things always happen whenever I talk with him. But, um, you know, he was he was telling me the process of what it was like. He was like, yeah, I was thinking of buying some Bitcoin and some Ethereum and putting it in my IRA. And he just walked me through the process. He's like, I, I don't even know how to start, uh, you know, not not like actually how to do it, but how to even start. Um, so I think the Bitcoin spot ETF is huge. I also think broadly, like there's not going to be a silver bullet. It's going to be a bunch of lead bullets. And so, you know, the, the like writing and, and putting everything into one, one event, one approval, one catalyst, I, I think isn't accurate, but I think it's just going to be a slow grind upwards. My dad's financial advisor is this guy who used to play in the Canadian football league, the CFL that he golfs with. It's like, why are you, why are you with this guy? It's like, he's a nice guy. It's like, all right, that's probably not how you should manage your money. Got access so like, to some clubs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like, it needs to be a dead simple and it needs to have a bit of a narrative behind it. And I think we're building both. Like BlackRock yeah. ETF, you can just close your eyes and, and buy it. The other thing is it only takes one basis point to trade these things. That's fucking wild. That's going to be yeah. so liquid for the rest of crypto. Yeah. Agreed. I do think... We'll see when GBTC converts. I think it's at what, 17% today? 18%? Man, that's that's like a high vote of confidence in Barry converting, like soon. I don't know how, how I feel about that. Barry's the real winner <laughs> out of all this, honestly. I, I would love another year of people getting just turned up and wrecked on the GBTC trade before, before redemption. Just the widow trade continues, huh? Dude, people, <laughs> people get excited about it. My, my, my dad... My dad, or actually, it was my uncle texted me. He's like, "All right, like uh, GBTC trade back on." And I was like, "All right." 
Exactly. We're back. Get <laughs> so yeah. here's a question. Here's a question. When you've got all of the likes of the Black Rocks of the world, and you've got Grayscale and you know everybody else, like Bitwise, et cetera, um, do you think it's actually net positive value for Barry to convert or to keep it with the the two percent AUM fee? I think I think he'll keep it with the two percent AUM. I don't think he's going to decrease that. Why? There's you just, won't be able to. You won't be able you, to with an ETF. But the competitors will be. Yeah, 10, you will. Yeah. Next list that. No, no, you won't have a two percent AUM fee on the ETF. That'll be like uh, ten yeah. basis points. Yeah. I mean, he will probably keep the two percent. Is my point. And just hope that people like but, forget about it. No. But I mean, that's that, that's a losing uh, strategy. Gotta, yeah. Although you might make. That's an interesting. You know what? I think the road for him is like usually on commodity ETFs like this. There aren't ten options. There are right. two. There are two options, right? For gold, it's GLD and IAU, and that's it, really. The, the, so, this is my point. This is my point. When you've got fifteen applications and you, you're going up the likes of you know BlackRock to try and get one of these approved and build the AUM, meanwhile you're charging two percent. You're clipping two percent on Bitcoin ETF or Bitcoin, you know, trust, I, like it, it probably is a question as to whether or not you actually want to convert. If people want, the, honestly, one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to is Eric Balkunas actually went on Invest Like the Best years ago, maybe, like maybe 2018 or 2019. And he did this deep dive on ETFs and how they end up growing. And he was like, the strategy, it sort of barbells into either like very staid, uh, kind of boring thing or the shiny new thing. Like the arc was just taking off at that point. And, um, and he, he also said, it's a silly, but like the ticker really matters. The ticker matters a ton in the ETF game. Um, What's I forget. He, he, <laughs> <laughs> what was it? Wisdom tree. I don't know. One of them, one of them had Burr as the ticker. That's it feels it like, a, like, like a Valkyrie or something. Yeah. yeah got, does anyone have BTC as a ticker? Ooh, that's the winner, right? I mean, it's gotta be. So, <laughs> Yeah, the the other thing that I'm noticing is just there's going to be a lot of marketing that happens around these things. Yes, like yeah. I remember, I remember in the last cycle when FTX and Coinbase turned on their consumer marketing in like Q1 of 2021, and it was like FTX on the basketball court and Coinbase on the yeah. uh, on the rim, and it was like you know like literally everywhere and Sam's face all over fucking San Francisco on those stupid billboards. <laughs> Like, I mean, it's, great. I mean, it's still, like yeah, it's still, even in this bear market, like I was in JFK this weekend and, and, uh, and grayscale's up on, like when you walk through JFK, it's just right. grayscale, grayscale. Justin's son, Justin's son's what? face. Yeah. <laughs> Out of JFK, one of the terminals that you go, there's like an overpass thing and it's just like a Tron ad with just Justin's son's face. <laughs> it's like how honestly, probably millions of people have seen this because it's been up for almost, I think it's been up for almost a year. Something. What a guy. Oh, yeah. I'm going to meet him in Korea. Shout out. Shout out Justin Sun. His excellency. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Wow. Oh. Well, <laughs> my, my president. That's my president. That's so good. I hey, love I have, that ad. I've got a random question for you guys. Uh, I was thinking about this and I, I, I have like kind of an answer, but not really a great answer. Um, so crypto has stuck to these four-year cycles, right? And people sort of hand wave about like why that is and the having and, and things like that. And it was it was a pretty common argument that you heard last cycle that there's going to be no eventually this will this will not be the case. And Suzu obviously he's the super cycle, the super cycle. All right, so the super cycle's wrong. But I actually was thinking about it, and I, I'm now a believer in the four-year cycle, but I can't come up with a great first principles reason for why there should be a cycle. So other cyclical industries, there are cyclical industries, and usually those are industries that are either really CapEx intensive uh, or, I guess, and have like a, a long time gap in between bringing supply online to meet demand. So housing is kind of the great example of this, right? Where demand kicks up in housing. It takes a long time to build the houses. And by the time all the housing inventory comes online, the demand has rolled off and demand is rolling off at the same time. Supply is coming online and like, boom. So these cycles sort of go. Uh, gold is a really cyclical industry, semiconductors, uh, things like that. Crypto is really cyclical, but it, it's not that CapEx intensive. It, it's, it's harder to come up with a, 
a good first principles reason for why that is. Have you, do you guys think it is or or no? Happening is it, like the anchoring point that everyone is like, this is happening. But it also just happens to like business cycles kind of tend to move in like five year increments. Yeah. You know, and, and like it's like it, it's real because everyone believes it's real. But that, okay. that's not just apparent in this industry. If, you, if you've ever hung out with real estate bros, <laughs> they're like they're trying to get a happening going like every other year. And they're just building like shit that people don't need in places that are already way overbuilt. But like and they're they're either five years too early or five years too late every single time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of our friends are too late, but we're <laughs> we're there for them. But but Mike, to your question, I think, you know, the the first principles answer is that it starts with the happening. And I think when you see those types of cycles, and I mean that's the only thing you know, Im implicitly that goes every four years. And then there's everything else that comes with it. There's the 2013 cycle, you know, Bitcoin goes from like $5 to 1200. Then it goes back down. You have different infrastructure build out, you have different companies. Then you have, you know, the ICO cycle and all everything that happens in 2017, 2021. I mean, we're going to see if it all happens again. I, I think it will. The, the one variable that is obviously very different this is going to be the first cycle that also has interest rates and we're not going to be in a zero interest rate perspective. Um, how that will have an effect. Sure. I don't know. Um, will it have an effect? It'll probably have some, but it's not going to be, you know, the, the massive 10 X hundred X, you know, changes that we've seen historically, just because we're going off of a bigger base at this point. This is a Morgan Stanley report. They published last, uh, last month that, one of the Morgan Stanley folks sent to me. It is um, it is literally about the Bitcoin halving, and they're basically telling their clients <laughs> that after the Bitcoin oh halving, the pr the price the price goes up. Oh I'm gonna tell you guys this. It's 10, <laughs> ten pages, but the I'll give you the TLDR. Every four years, crypto goes through cycles, and after the Bitcoin halving, it takes a little bit of time, but then the price always goes up. That, that will be half a million dollars for that research, please. <laughs> As someone who used to make these presentations, I know exactly what these people are doing. Yeah. Summer like historically results in the highest Bitcoin returns. <laughs> Let's go. So this is summer 2024. We are ripping. <laughs> I mean, Vanek is calling for, what was it? Something yeah. insane. 130,000 per ETH. <laughs> Yeah, their base, their base case was 38,000. In conclusion, it looks like we have entered a typical crypto spring. It's time to get educated. He, I mean, <laughs> hats off to MS. Yeah, they did yeah. a great job on that. The other part of this is like, there were articles written about like Uber at a billion by like academics saying like, here's mathematically why this is a scam and it's worth zero. And like, sometimes these things just end up being far larger than you can anticipate. When I see like the 180k target from Tom Lee thrown out, it kind of doesn't seem that crazy, honestly, for, for Bitcoin, not for ETH. <laughs> <laughs> when you see people gunning for for ETH, you know, 50k, maybe take some size off. Oh, we talked uh, we talked Tornado Cash last week, uh, or maybe it was two weeks ago, and that was a pretty kind of depressing thing that happened. But uh, I think the flip side of that happened this week with Uniswap, right? So, Mike, you want to take us through that? Um, yeah, so there was a Uniswap class action lawsuit uh, that got also thrown out this week by a judge in the Southern District of New York, uh, Judge Fela, butcher that name. But it, the, the, the crux of it came down to the notion that um, software platforms can be held liable for damages caused by a third party misuse of that software code. Obviously, that has huge implications for crypto writ large, but also DeFi. It's probably worth noting that that same judge is overseeing the SEC versus Coinbase class action as well. So, again, this is I think this is significant. A, it just feels like a victory for the good guys. But B, these sorts of things set legal precedent. And the Southern District of New York is not messing around either. So, I mean, what do you, what do you guys think about what do you guys think about all this? It was a <clears throat> nuanced and intelligent perspective uh, coming out of the court that I frankly just hadn't seen before. Um, there are a lot of really, really good quotes that came out of it. Like they quoted Hayden's tweet, you know, basically saying that the protocol is the yeah. protocol, uh, effectively like 
our front end, Uniswap. I think it's .com. Um, <clears throat> Uniswap.com can block an asset. That doesn't mean that the protocol blocks an asset. Um, yeah, it just felt it felt like a very kind of um, aligned perspective with all the stuff that we've been talking about. Whereas a lot of the other perspectives that we've seen coming out of these courts is just un unfortunately uneducated. Yeah, the I think the judge called ETH a commodity explicitly, which is not something that the SEC has been willing to to do before. Uh, some of those quotes include like this is a great quote. It defies logic that a drafter of computer code underlying a particular software platform could be liable under Section 29B for a third party's misuse of that platform. Uh, as discussed, smart contract platforms are self-executing, self-enforcing code. So, yeah. yeah, lots of lots of agreed, just very nuanced I mean, perspective coming out of this. Yeah, the court, the court said trying to go after them is like trying to go after the developer of a self-driving car, right? After the a third party had used the car to rob a bank. It's like you would never go after the, 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 the developer of the car, obviously. I mean, the other example they gave was it'd be like if somebody went after Cash App or Venmo for, you know, paying for illegal drugs. And, and we, yeah, makes you sense. said this, this is the woman that's handling the Coinbase case, too. Right. Yes. Which is like yeah. Coinbase is stock. Oh, I did not realize that. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's like <laughs> the, bank, the bank shot double win. It feels yeah. like we're just getting all this up. Stock not like ripping on that then. I, 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 think, I honestly I, I think, think it's misunderstood. vacation. <laughs> yeah or People, that. like yeah if that's the type of answer that she has for this case the coinbase case is just going to go terribly for the sec yeah that's crazy granted there is you know there are elements that are different this is a protocol that's a company they make decisions about what assets they list but i, I think you know uh fortune favors the brave here i think we'll be uh wow matt matt damon channel it <laughs> I don't uh, think I don't think we'll see him again. <laughs> who? Matt Damon? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that one. Feels like he's a one and done on the crypto cycles, but it's good to have yeah, him. Yeah, that what whatever speaking of, do we know whatever happened to that lawsuit against uh, you know, everybody including Shaq who was evading uh who's evading the subpoena forever. Yeah, I think it's just, it's a big win for Uniswap. And I think one, one of the more damaging uh, Im impacts of, of this regulatory crackdown has been entrepreneurs and developers feeling like they could get prosecuted being based out of the US. And I don't think this blanket solves that concern, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. I, I will say, just in conversations that we have with either our existing portfolio founders or or new you know potential portfolio companies, um, what happened with Ripple and what is happening with a lot of these other rulings is changing the tide in their perspective. Previously, it was there's no possible way for us to do this in the United States, or you know how do we how how could we possibly do this in the United States? Uh, now it's more when will we we be able to? Right. Um, and and I think that perspective change is it's big i mean what what is also happening we've talked about it before but the two bills that are working their way through the house of representatives and, and committees right now the fit bill and the stablecoin bill um you know they're uh, we're a part of it um through the blockchain association but there's a lot of work going on uh behind the scenes to make amendments before those actually go up for vote um a lot of positive you know conversations with the staffers that are actually writing these bills um they're they're taking the industry's feedback and, you know, putting, you know, changes in. Um, so I, I think not only are we going to see the courts, you know, favoring the industry uh, more and more over time, I think we're going to see some positive movement on the regulatory front too. And that, you know, potentially negates or potentially changes a lot of the perspectives that people will have in, in the courts. If, if the rules change, I mean, we're, we're going to have clarity. Only other thing I would add is like, as this bill gets feedback and gets changed, like we should not be children about this as an industry. Like there's going to be things that we don't like that get changed. There's going to be things we don't like that end up in there, but like ragging on the people who are trying to pull it all together is not helpful to the cause. Good should never be the enemy of perfect. Yeah. The three advocacy groups that we have in DC, uh, coin center, chamber of digital commerce, blockchain association, mm -hmm. they're like the least, I mean, people do appreciate them, but they just should get way more credit for the work that they do. I mean, like yeah. slogging through the legal battles in DC. <laughs> slogging. I mean, they're, they're slogging. Yeah, heroes. You know, 
there's also not a lot of industries that are as dynamic and as interesting as crypto. Maybe like AI from a legal perspective, policy perspective, but like these are the two cash cows for lobbyists, you know, and political type. I mean, I would argue it's the two cash cows for the United States Innovation Hub. Jesus. U.S. needs to get it together. Every every single day I read just more crazy political bullshit. Like today I read the Diane Feinstein stuff about <laughs> about her estate. You read this? No, I was. I, was, I thought you were going to say, do you see Mitch freeze up again? Mitch. Oh, my yeah. God. I mean, I just feel bad for him. He's just like, he's Me old, too. you know, yeah. old guy. Me too. Someone yeah. on Twitter said this. It's just like, it's sad for Mitch. It's sad for, it's just sad for everyone involved yeah, here, is. you know. The, the unfortunate ironic part is the question that he froze on was whether or not he's going to run again in 2026. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to nail that, miss that one. But yeah, it was the Feinstein stuff. She is somehow worth with her husband over a billion dollars. <laughs> I mean, you know her house, Vance. Yeah, it's pimping. Yeah, it's <laughs> literally on the Lion Street steps. It's like the nicest house in Billionaires Row. But now their whole family is knives out, fighting each other for this money, and she's like this frail old person who doesn't know what's going on. It's just a bad look. We need to get it together. How is she worth a billion dollars? It's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> Just made a few good trades on high leverage. <laughs> Couple of trades. <laughs> Man. Uh, I, the story didn't get into that, but that also felt like the biggest unanswered question. I mean, it's, a, it's also the same situation with Nancy Pelosi. I mean, that all stems from Paul, but, you know, he ran an investment bank for 35 years. As, as one does. Anyway, these are, these are our local senators. I, I would love... I would love to be a fly on the wall when Paul gets asked, like, Paul, what's your edge? What's your edge in the markets? Like, what do you know that other people don't? And he's just like, <laughs> I got Nancy. <laughs> got Nance. <laughs> Locked and loaded. Um, all right. What, one one thing that I wanted to, moving back to crypto, I wanted to get your guys' take on. Uh, so Starkware had an interesting situation this week. So uh, Starkware, like like many of these L2s, or, or even Ethereum or any blockchain, frankly, goes through a series of upgrades, right? So um, software updates that have to get pushed through to a bunch of different users. And a couple of months ago, they they put out the notice that, you know, something to the effect of, hey, um, you know, if you're on this, this standard of wallet, you need to upgrade. And they pushed through an upgrade um, because, again, the, the thing that governs uh, StarkNet is a multi-sig. Um, and a bunch of people lost access to their funds. Now, this isn't, this isn't, it wasn't a huge amount of money. It was 550K. They, uh, I think they, they made changes pretty quickly that allowed users to claim those old funds. So no one lost any money. I think the, uh, it was a gaffe just in terms of pushing that forward. And I think the bigger problem is that there, the system even allows them to do something like that. Um, and I think that's the thing that needs to get called attention to. And, you know, I think we we know things like there are, you know, there are still major L2s that don't have fraud proofs live. Most of these things are upgradable contracts that are governed by a multi-sig. If you're going to store billions of dollars on, on these chains, uh, I know we need training wheels, but also, yeah, you should, it kind of should make you think twice a little bit as a user, right? You should, you should make sure nobody accidentally kicks the power cord. Yeah, who do you contact if your balance get, got deleted? Is there like a remuneration program or is it your local Twitter influencer with yeah. 100,000 followers to post? Contact us, customer support. Yeah. Wait, so the network so the network upgraded to new contracts, which meant that any wallet that was using old contracts were were deprecated, but then they people freaked out and then they flipped the switch back on so you could reaccess those wallets. Is that right, Mike? I mean, yeah, we're starting to move outside of my technical range of knowledge, but yeah, something like that. I actually that. think this calls out another issue. So there's the obvious issues like, I mean, that's ridiculous that they can that they can do that, turn that on and off. I didn't know that you could, I honestly didn't know you could do that. It also calls out that, um, I mean, there's still no communication layer for crypto. To be clear, any of the L2s could do that. This isn't a start. No, no, I know, it's, but it's great. I didn't know that was possible. And I, now I realize that that's possible on, on not yeah. just Starkware. But I think the other issues like, I mean, we had this with permies. It was like, I wanted to tell the permies that like, you know, we launched this NFT thing. And I was like, you know, you can, you get access to permissionless for free, for example. And then it was like, well, we have to drop, hopefully they follow us on Twitter already. We then have to drive them into a discord and then post on discord and hope that they have notifications on for discord. There's like, there's no email equivalent for crypto. And you got to imagine like, 
as wallets get bigger, communication gets built into wallets, people will start checking their wallets daily. Um, or I don't know if that's it, but like, Somebody. you gotta be able to, you gotta be able to communicate with your users. And so I, I think in a lot of these examples of like the maturation of tech markets, um, you know, we, we've talked about this kind of before, but like, obviously Facebook was not the first social network. It did not, you know, originate the idea, but what made it enabled, what, what made it popular photos and what actually made it popular was the ability to have digital photos that were easily accessible. I think we're going to look back and like one of these lockstep huge changes is going to be like, oh, we can actually communicate wallet to wallet now. Like you can on Etherscan and there's like hacky ways of doing it. I mean, people literally send transactions with the, with the data field. Um, but I, I, you know, until there is something that's canonical and, and pervasive, I don't think, I mean, this is one of the things that we're, we're looking at thinking about for social crypto. You know, friend tech is, is obviously, you know, one example of a chat-based application where, you know, built into the blockchain, but, you know, you don't have this native um, right now. And I think, you know, that, that will actually enable a lot of social functionality. Mm. Mm. Friend tech has it, has the chat. It's like really shitty and it's not decentralized, but somebody like XMTP is built. XMTP, right? I think they're kind of like the, the front runner right now because I think they're Coinbase wallets messaging provider too. Yeah. Mm. They're good people. For you know what a good source of information just to close it out on on Starkware is L2B is pretty good about this. They've got a sort of dashboard of these are the different things that we would like to ultimately see for L2s to be decentralized and other statistics just about each each uh, each of the big L2s and uh, you can kind of compare and contrast side by side. So shout out L2B for a pretty good source of info. We talked about bringing back hot takes. Anyone have any hot takes they want to want to share? The in the next in the next bull market, one big brand will drive more transactions than all DeFi platforms combined. It's going to be a game. I was looking at it. I I don't know what it'll either be a game or like I don't know. I was looking at one of those platforms. It's not L two B, but it's like one of those you know like run by a two person company type thing. Um, yep. And uh, DraftKings drove more transactions than like any platform in crypto in July or June. What did DraftKings? What's the link there? They're on Polygon. They've got like they launched some shit on Polygon. There were like a hundred and forty thousand transactions in a week, hmm. um, all of like you know a hundred bucks each or something like relative size. Mm. You know? there, there's a company called Midnight Society, um, and they're a game. They did a mint, I think, in uh, I want to say like February or March. Uh, Four hundred thousand in one week broke Polygon. Like the scale of these games and, and like uh, whether it's DraftKings, I consider that to kind of be a game like that consumer scale, I think it's just something that crypto has never even you know fathomed. Um, like uh, <clears throat> I was listening to the um, Antonio Garcia Martinez interview um, and he was talking about DSPs and what it's like to actually go through like the ad stack. And that was, you know, effectively his team at Facebook was my team at Snap. Um, and we built the ad auction at Snap. You're talking about like 300,000 to 500 to 700,000 transactions a second of just like being able to you know, process all of that information in real time. Like imagine the speed that it takes you to load a web page. There's about seven different institutions that, that that function just went through to be able to serve you that ad. It's, it's absolutely crazy the scale of some of these consumer apps. I've got a hot take for you guys. Um... Did you did everyone see the airdrop announcement from Friend Tech that uh, only airdrops would basically only go to people that didn't use clones or forks, and it got widely panned? I didn't hate it, actually. Um, I think I think airdrops are being iterated on right now. Uh, like the point system is the most obvious way to kind of drag it out in general, but airdrops are a really good way to solve the cold start problem. But I think a lot of founders woke up on the other side of the bear market and we're like, I'm just giving my token away for people to turn around and dump it. And that's not helping anything. So points are one part of that solution. But yeah, I, I do think that everyone in crypto or like one of the not great things about crypto is there's this expectation that I just show up early and therefore I get free stuff and I should just be rewarded. And I think savvy founders and uh, you know, good product designers would be like, this is the behavior that I want to see. If you don't do the behavior that I'm trying to incentivize, you don't get the, you know, get the reward. So 
Um, I'm not sure if it'll play out. It, I could see it blowing up in their face too, but I, I didn't hate it from a ethos perspective. I don't think that's against crypto's ethos or something like that. I got, I get a hot take. The, uh, the first protocol, not base layer, the first application to have a billion dollars of annualized revenue flowing to a token. I mean, that's where it's, I think we're going to hit that in the next cycle. And I think it's already been created. You think the protocol? Are you going to name that? Are you going to elaborate no further? Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for your time. I I, I think like I would call this a lukewarm take, but the macro bears are back. I I listened to I had a long drive yesterday. I listened to like five macro podcasts. I I like I feel terrible. (laughs) Too much. Too much macro. Didn't want to get out of bed today. Yeah. Too (laughs) Too much macro. But yeah, some guy was like, you know, bulls are going to get their heads chopped off. <laughs> it's like, dude, too much. I mean, I've, I've been listening to predictions of 7% unemployment in Q1, Q2 of next year. That that shit is back, like the macro recession calls. But can you explain that to me? What, what, like they just because they think that the Fed is going to basically hike until we, they break something? I think they their perspective is that it's basically already broken. It just is not in the data, like because the data is so laggy and interest rate hikes are already laggy. They're like it's all going to happen in Q four Q one. I I told this to Vance. So I graduated high school in in spring two thousand eight, spring uh, fall two thousand seven. My like elective class I chose to take economics in high school. I remember writing my end of semester paper on whether or not we were already in a recession in you know december 2007 you know took another nine months for lehman to fail but i think it, like i think of that example just it represents in my mind how long it takes for these things to actually play out and for them to to happen <clears throat> because it's not really like it doesn't move at crypto speed obviously and things are faster now than they were in 2007 2008 but i i think you know the economic data uh jolts this week you know the largest decrease that they've ever had in the recording of jolts was this yeah. week. Yeah. <clears throat> like you're starting to see some of these private data points or non, you know, classic uh, data points like unemployment rate and GDP and inflation. Like you're starting to see the Manaheim, the the Zillow indexes, like all that stuff starting to come down on inflation and, and growth also is not looking too hot right now. Uh, I, I think you're going to start to see some of these things actually break pretty soon. The the macro cycle to like drastically simplify it, you know, to your question, like, why do people think this is there's like four components and they tend to proceed sequentially. So step number one is there's a change in the interest rate environment. So interest rates go up or down. So they go up. The The first thing that that impacts usually is housing. Housing is a super interest interest rate sensitive sector uh, because basically everyone is levered to the tits on housing. Um, and when housing goes up and down, it has this twofold effect on the economy, which is one, like a, t- a ton of different sectors in the US touch housing. It's all the things that go into the home. It's the white goods, it's construction, it's, it's like all these raw materials and very like non-sexy industries that employ a ton of people. And it's also everyone's wealth. So there's a huge wealth effect. When houses are up, everyone thinks they're wealthier and they spend more. So after housing goes down, both of those things start to work in the opposite direction. And when that's and when that starts to happen, you get profit margins contract. And that's when you start to see companies miss earnings and margins to get squeezed. And then what people do is they fire people. That's what companies do. And that's the that's the general cycle as it plays out. So everyone has been pointing to like unemployment is really strong as a sign of the economy being strong. It's it, unemployment is the last thing to turn. And usually before recessions start, unemployment is extremely low so that's why people think this that's generally the way the cycle plays out i mean yeah especially the white collar jobs try getting a tech job at a big tech company right now they're like we're not hiring for how long for the foreseeable future (laughs) for ai did you did you see there was a there's a headline in the wall street journal it's like uh forget quiet quitting now companies are quiet cutting it's like that's such a cutesy way of saying like, yeah, they probably watched the TikTok videos y'all were putting out. <laughs> <laughs> they saw those. <laughs> they saw those. They probably they saw it. Yeah. And, you shouldn't uh, have tagged your employer in it. <laughs> it yeah, AI gives them not. the narrative cover to cut those people. 
in the same way that COVID gave a lot of people the narrative cover. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the question is, what is the, like, <laughs> This one, this one macro pod that Michael and I both listen to calls for seven percent unemployment by Q1. That's like a that's like a COVID magnitude event. The doubling of the unemployment rate, maybe that happens, but it probably directionally trends that way. And, and just to be clear, like as crazy as that sounds, and as terrible as that sounds, I ultimately think that that's a very good thing. Very good thing. And here, here's my question: There will be a bad news is good news period. We're definitely in that right now, where it's like, ooh, jolt are down. Let's ramp NVIDIA up again. But then it's going to be like, all right, what is bad news is bad news look like? And that'll be like, you know. It, Consumption it, goes down because unemployment is at 7%. That's what it right. looks like. Right, right, right. But I mean, also keep in mind, you know, we'll see what happens in November. It's going to be an election year. I think most change, which is, uh, you know, positive will come if the economic factors uh, in in the backdrop are not positive. Um, I think you're going to see interest rate cuts faster if you have actual negative economic data. And frankly, like this thing is going to happen. I think that's kind of where this like negative macro cycle is is coming from. Like it's going to happen. It's just a question of when and how bad. Uh, and I think, you know, getting it over faster is going to be better. I think the other reason why I think it's good is like, in, in a low interest rate environment, bad decisions get rewarded. I think it's really frustrating. And it, it, like think about how that's played out in crypto in the past. I always, the, there's a phrase, I think, from Web2, which is like, you're always at the mercy of your stupidest competitor. And I, I feel like this played out most directly in the case of Celsius and BlockFi. And these are just my personal opinions. They're not, I know both of those companies failed, but I've always had a lot of empathy for BlockFi because I thought that management team had integrity and generally played things really right. And one of the ways they got screwed was, um, one of the ways they got screwed was Celsius just did not offer realistic interest rates. I remember talking to their their VP of finance like a long time before, like during the bear market of 2018 or 2019. They're like, we just can't see how the math adds up for their rates. But if your competitor is just taking way too much risk, offering way too high of rates, you could say that that doesn't make sense until the cows come home. You're just, it looks like you're just getting you're shit rocked for like two or three years at a time. You know how long two or three years is to be losing? I mean, just tough, man. It's just just tough. And and ZERP environments reward that type of behavior because you can always get financed, you know. So you can always get $40 million under the table from a CEO of <laughs> a big exchange. All right. Here's a question for you. For the next 20 years, do you think – interest rates on average will be above or below 3% for the Fed funds rate? I think it'll fluctuate, but I think the US, the only option that they have is to inflate their debt away. So it really depends on where the natural rate of inflation is and interest rates will be like 3% below that. I think it's below. I think it's probably below. And also just like the, the magnitude and quantum of the debt that needs to be rolled over means that you need low interest rates to do that. So I, I, I also don't think it's going to be zero. I don't think it's gonna be zero. I don't, no, I mean, should it be? we'll probably find some excuse in our lifetimes to get back down there. But like two and a half, three percent interest rates. A, I'm not wigged out about that within the context of evaluation for tech stocks. But B, that's not exciting for me to like go take my money off of crypto and put it in a bank, especially if that shit's on no. chain. Like, I don't know. I would I would call these interest rates probably transitory in the fullness of time. Oh, 100%. We're at the highest they've been in, what, what is it, 20 years? Dude, you, you can buy like 2% real rate treasuries like 10, 20 years out. Like that's an amazing deal if you're, you know, a big pension fund or insurance fund. Eventually, they're all just going to buy those. 2%? Two, two you can buy them for 5%. I'm saying real. Real rates. Real oh, rates. real rates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 5% is historically relatively normal though, but it, but the dot-com bubble happened at five percent, five or six percent interest rates. Yeah. Like you asked that question before, could crypto happen at five percent tenure? Like absolutely, it could. Um, I think. So, I don't know. I so the the CBO is the is the nonpartisan uh, Congressional Budget Office. It projects out the debt for the U.S. Like the and they 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 blew everyone's socks off, and they were like, "Yeah, we're we're projecting." I think their first estimate was somewhere around a trillion dollars in debt. Then they came out and said it was going to be 
2 trillion in, in debt per year for the next 10 years. So cool. ending the ending the next decade at a $50 trillion plus in debt. And like this second half of the year, they're now projecting like 1.6 for half the year. It's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what? What, what is all this money getting spent on? Yeah, so they, they have to inflate it away, I feel like. That's going to suck, actually. That's going to be us that bears the brunt of that. But yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, if you hold on to the no. right assets, no. No, if you hold assets, That's we're not the man. ones that feel the brunt of that. It, yeah. It's, it's, the so, it's, it's, it's the social stuff. It's the oh. social stuff, dude. I, oh, I just yeah. don't think you want to live through that. I don't – those – like if you rewind the clock to like those periods of time, even if you come out on top asset-wise, those are not fun periods of time to live through. Like countries are miserable when that's going on. You yeah, know, but isn't that like countries are miserable at 50% inflation? Like if you have like 8% inflation, does, it sucks. But like if you hold assets, you're you're good? Or tell me I, I'm wrong there. You're, you're, I mean the 70s gold ripped 2,800%, you know, in that decade. Well – Inflation was like 10, I think, somewhere around there. I don't think it's going to be that bad for people who hold outside money or like really high quality. Like here's an example. Uh, you know, let's say in a few years, you know, things are looking shaky for the U.S. government. Apple is still chugging along. Do you want to own Apple bonds or do you want to US want to own U.S. government bonds? Probably like Apple bonds. Do you want to own ETH cash flow or like government cash flow? Probably ETH cash flow accounting for the upside. The plan is to not get worked by this. Uh, If you're you're a salary, that's where it becomes tough. Yeah. The the other perspective here is if you, I mean, and this is just highlighted with the Jackson Hole meeting last week. It's like out of all of the G7 countries, the U.S. economy is still by far and away the best. Yeah. And and while we may be, you know, in trouble in in a lot of respects or, you know, the next 20 years, 30 years, 50 years is, you know, we're going to be met with some issues there are much bigger issues basically everywhere else. Yeah. Well, I think the way that it, uh, yeah, I don't know. I actually, I'm not, I'm not sure actually that it works. I think income people do better in this scenario because what, what the U S is doing is they're doing a soft default of the debt is what they're doing is saying like, we don't actually have enough money to pay this debt back. So we're going to inflate, you know, at a rate that's much higher than our debt load. So you wake up in 10 years and if um, you are a, a, a creditor at that point, the amount of debt relative to income is like much more. Like think about if you had a mortgage, right? And um, it was, uh, you know, $250,000 or a million dollar mortgage or something like that. And you make um, and you make $250,000 a year. If, if there's a rip roar in inflation for 10 years, you could be making a million dollars a year at the end of that 10 years. But then your mortgage is still a million dollars. So if you're, the income people actually tend to do pretty well in inflation. It's the asset holders, specifically the bond holders, that get absolutely smoked because that's the explicit objective is to devalue bondholders. That assumes that your salary changes every year. I think your salary has to change. Otherwise, there would be like riots and and like well, over, I mean, like I old. Which is why I think asset holders actually do the best, because that'll change with market. Depends on the asset. I think depends on the asset. I, I think these problems are fixable, though, in my mind, at least. Mm-hmm. Like I think we have problems. We know what they are. We also have like tools. What are they? Crypto, AI, nuclear, you know, technology broadly. I think if we put them together in the right order, like we can unlock some serious stuff. Like I, I do think there is a, a lot of reason to be hopeful. So I, you know. Aside from the macro doom, I think the U.S. is in a pretty decent position if we keep all these industries onshore. I think so too. Yeah, I think so too. Vance, I like your roast of uh, this twenty-two percent Lido thing right now. <laughs> Let's just talk about that for a second. <laughs> Neither this tweet. I ju- I hadn't seen this tweet. This is the dumbest tweet I've ever seen. So there's we've talked about this a lot. So I'm not, I don't want to beat this dead horse again because it's already flogged, but. People are like obsessing about, you know, no, no validator platform, regardless if you use DVT or have distributed node operators or, you know, anything, you can't run more than 22%. There's no evidence or justification given. And now you have this guy, you know, signing up Rocket Pool, Stakewise, Stater Labs, Diva Staking. I've never heard of them. And they've all made the brave commitment to never, never stake more than 22% of all ETH. 
guys, you have like 0.001% of all. <laughs> That'd be like Blockworks being like, I commit to to having 1% of the financial media market. And Bloomberg's like, well, <laughs> it's like, yeah. So I, I also committed to never run more than 22% of all stake teeth personally in the event that I end up owning that much. So just, you know, some are bad takes out here. Let's let's improve, please. Yeah. The Lido takes are horrendous. They're so really bad Lido takes. So bad. Yeah. They're also, I think it's kind of hypocritical because Lido, the first of all, the reason it found product market, there are a lot of reasons it found product market fit, but the reason it was originally blessed is because A, Ethereum didn't provide an in-protocol way to delegate stake, and then B, <laughs> the exchanges were going to take the whole market. <laughs> like they, What we didn't want was... Binance to roll some, or even Coinbase, as great as they are, they're still a centralized company. You didn't want them to own the entire Ethereum network. And so we got a decentralized solution, which is a DAO and has dual voting and, uh, or dual governance rather. So yeah, I just think it's so hypocritical and it's a winner take all market. These people don't take into account market structure dynamics either. So yeah, having all the people that have like 5% of the stake be like, yeah, we'll never do more than 22%. Also, yeah, also just, like, it's so hard to build a company. Lido has just executed so freaking well. Like if I, you want to compete again, you want to get more market share, go out compete, go execute better. No, we'd rather sign like the reverse giving it's pledge for crypto that we won't, oh. you know, exceed 22. You love free markets and you love being a libertarian until like, <laughs> until you're not, until you don't have the market share. Yeah, it kills me. My bags need to go up. Um, Good podcast. They hit they hit eight and a half million, eight point two five today. I guess if I did have to take the other side of that, do you think if there was some catastrophic slashing event, the ETH would hard fork on Lido? No, we've already had that in Lido. There's been a couple of slashing incidents, nowhere near as bad as the rest of the field, but we've already played that game. I, th- I think the more pertinent discussion we should talk about this on the next one is, um, like inflation versus burn versus rewards. Who gets what? Why? Who comes to the table? Who? How do they negotiate? How do they signal? If you have all the Steve signaling, like the network is going to be a lot more cohesive than like Stakewise Cult versus Rocket Pool Cult versus Lido. Like we all are one Ethereum in my mind. Wait, why don't you think there'd be a hard fork? Isn't Lido big enough at this point and powerful enough to create a hard fork there? I don't think they're actually big enough yet. I think that would be like a 40, 50% moment where they could actually swing it it also depends on who shows up or like what governance voting is like or where it happens there's no formal governance of eth right there's i think you can't have your cake and eat it too and i think ethereum's design choice which is the right design choice is to not have that within the protocol but then you can't complain when someone who's a successful service provider and gives people what they want which is the ability to passively delegate stake does that and there's kind of an irony actually where native stake uh, native stake delegation works a lot better in something like solana which has delegated proof of stake and the liquid staking adoptions like three percent the stake rate of solana is 70 percent or 80 percent and the liquid staking penetration is like three and the reason why is because you have in their withdrawal periods really low and you can just delegate in protocol it's super easy so ethereum i i actually kind of think it was the right choice Uh, They decided to not put that in the protocol. Another solution popped up. And I think the right way to do that is to engage with like one of the few apps that's found product market fit and not just bully them on Twitter. That just doesn't seem like the right, right? That doesn't seem like the right solution. Any other team I'd be with you, but Lido is so locked in that they like, they don't care. Yeah. Right. They, they just want to get as much ETH in there as possible and they're, and they're winning. All right, fellas. This is a good one. Peace. Peace. Peace.